In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. My sermon for today and our text for this morning are about faithfulness, both God's faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to God. During the epiphany season in which we currently find ourselves, we both witness and bear witness to the revealing of the mystery of God become human in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the culmination of God's faithfulness to God's creation, to God's promises, and ultimately to who God is. All of, those, of all those that play a role in the revealing of Christ, though, few figures play as prominent a role as John the Baptist in the bearing of faithful witness. This is certainly the case in our readings for today, and so I want to start with him. There are many pieces of art throughout history that have depicted various parts of the life of John the Baptist, his eating locusts in the desert, his eventual beheading, his baptizing of Jesus, for example, but few are as famous as the crucifixion scene of the Eisenheim altarpiece, which has frequently been misattributed to Matthias Grunewald. The altarpiece was constructed in the early 16th century and currently rests in the Alsace region of France in the city of Colmar, where thousands of people visit it each year. One of the most notable features of the crucifixion scene of the altarpiece is John the Baptist, standing to Christ's left as Christ hangs dying upon the cross. Below John stands a lamb from whose neck blood pours into a chalice. The Baptist, who holds an open book, stands in front of a Latin script which reads, he must increase, I must decrease. John points to the dying Christ with what seems to be an unusually long finger, albeit a very captivating one. John's act of pointing, echoed in the text from the first chapter of John's Gospel this morning, serves as a fitting representation of human faithfulness. But before unpacking that further, I want to turn to the Old Testament reading from Isaiah as an illustration of God's faithfulness. The text we heard from Isaiah 49 is the second of the famous servant songs in Isaiah. And in it, we are given a picture of the one who is God's active agent in bringing justice and salvation to the nations, to the ends of the earth. What's particularly interesting about Isaiah's portrayal of the servant here, though, is that he will be one whose power of the sword comes by way of his spoken word. His mouth is the means by which he will execute justice. I'm here reminded of the story from Luke's gospel where the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus, asking him about where he gets his authority from. He responds by asking them whether the baptism of John has come from heaven or whether it was from human origin. And the Pharisees huddle together and play out the hypothetical responses they might offer, and both answers, it turns out, would land them in trouble. So in response, they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. His words put an end to the fighting. But of course, there are other examples where the kind of peace Christ's words bring are a different sort of peace, the peace of shalom, his speaking stillness to the waves, his healing words to the sick, his literal life-giving words where he calls forth Lazarus back to life, and as in today's gospel, where he calls Peter to be his disciple the very Peter who will be the rock upon whom the church is built. Moreover, we are told that this servant will be the one to bring salvation to the nations, to the far corners of the earth. In Christ's, 
in Christ, God's plan for Israel to be a light to the nations finds its culmination. But what strikes me most about Isaiah's song here is the way the servant's mission is seen as an instance of God's faithfulness to God's promises to the people of Israel. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, Isaiah says, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Despite what might appear to be an abandonment of Israel and a going back on the promises God made, God's plan to reconcile all things in Christ remains steadfast. God's faithfulness is certainly keeping God's covenants, but it's more than that. It's a constancy to who God is, to God's very identity as the one who freely loves that which God has made. The theme of God's faithfulness is continued in the introduction to St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians as well. Here, Paul is able to look at the Corinthian church, which is marked by some pretty significant problems as we read later in the book, and say that there was a testimony of Christ that had been confirmed among them. But he sees this as a testament not to anything the Corinthians had done by their own power, probably even in spite of what they had done. Rather, it is because God is the faithful one who sustains by the giving of the Spirit. So as Paul sees it, it seems, God's faithfulness can't help but create creatures who themselves are faithful, who will be guiltless or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul writes. And I take it that guiltless or blameless here does not refer to the unilateral and unconditional forgiveness of the God who is love, and therefore who cannot but forgive those who do wrong, but instead to the fact that God's work of reconciling all things to God requires some sort of change to take place in creatures who will have fellowship with God. God will bring about that change because God is faithful. We see an even more profound picture of faithfulness in the gospel text, where we encounter the first two of three witnesses in this chapter to Jesus's mission and identity. This section comes after the famous prologue of John, where Christ is seen as the word who was with God from eternity past and is now with us as a living tabernacle in human flesh. This Jesus is identified by John the Baptist here as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. John bears witness to Christ's identity several times, telling his followers that this guy was the guy, was the guy he was telling them about and that he himself had seen a revealed confirmation of his identity. This happens at two different times, and the second time earns Jesus some new followers. He asks them what they're searching for, a question that the theologian Rudolf Bultmann sees as the existential question facing every person who encounters Jesus. What is it that you're looking for? And they recognized who Christ is, the rabbi or the teacher, and they follow him to hear his words. John's faithful pointing to Christ is the means by which the church is built. Returning then to the Eisenheim altarpiece, another detail that sticks out if you look at the painting, and I encourage you to look at it if you've never seen it before, it's, it's beautiful and captivating and haunting. Another detail that sticks out is that the Christ who hangs on the cross looks sickly and deformed and is covered with some kind of skin disease. This, of course, was not by accident. It turns out that the altarpiece was originally commissioned for the hospital chapel at the monastery of St. Anthony in Eisenheim, the east of France near the border of Germany. 
The hospital treated all sorts of ailments and diseases, but its specialty was treating victims of St. Anthony's fire, today called ergotism, a disease that was commonly spread in the Middle Ages through the consumption of cereal grains such as rye that had been contaminated by the fungus. The disease caused a number of symptoms ranging from seizures and vomiting to psychosis and mania. It also resulted in gangrenous sores that would spread over the body and eat away at the skin until the extremities that received little blood would rot, die, and fall off. It was not a kind disease, nor were its symptoms painless. The painter of the crucifixion, which we've only recently discovered actually to be either Matthias Godhard or Neidhard, not Grunwald, intentionally chose to represent Christ as suffering in his flesh from the very affliction those who suffered in the hospital had. And he hoped that those praying at the altarpiece in the chapel would be comforted by the Son of God's identification with their suffering. He hoped that victims would see Christ's particular solidarity with their physical sufferings and find themselves especially comforted, knowing that God was with them truly and fully. Yes, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world because he is the very Son of God, as John recognizes, but by this one's humanity, he suffers the full range of human experiences and bears the physical sufferings of the world, healing us all by his wounds. This is precisely what the early church had in mind with the oft-repeated phrase, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, Gregory of Nazianzus. It is this Christ, the disfigured and diseased Christ, to whom John the Baptist witnesses. But there is another faithful John the Baptist-like figure that I can't help but mention here, one who bore similarly faithful witness to the Lamb of God. And tomorrow we celebrate his life and mournfully remember his death. This figure, of course, was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But his prophetic finger pointed to a Christ whose humanity bore different wounds, providing his African-American brothers and sisters with comfort and solidarity. King's was not to a gangrenous and diseased Christ on the cross, like the one in the altarpiece, but instead to a black Christ hanging from a lynching tree in the town center, or beaten and left for dead in a river at the hands of a mob of angry white people. In 1946, at the age of 17, when he was a student at Morehouse College, King wrote a letter to the editor of a local newspaper after five African-Americans were lynched in a matter of days. He cried out concerning the immorality of racism and called for equal rights for and equal treatment of African-Americans. Shortly after King became a prominent face of the civil rights movement, he received a phone call on January 27, 1956. On the other end of the line was a voice threatening to blow up his house if he didn't leave Montgomery, Alabama, where the bus boycott was happening, and take his movement elsewhere. In a scene much like a modern psalm of deliverance, King recounted going to his kitchen after the call and verbally expressing his fear to God. His courage was running thin, and he was ready to give up the fight. But he heard an audible voice. The voice said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. And this voice of a faithful God gave the Reverend Dr. King the courage to continue his pointing, as he would do for over a decade more. 
Three nights after the mysterious phone call, King's house was bombed. But thankfully, he was out of the house, and his family escaped without physical damage, but not without psychological damage, I suspect. When King's followers were ready to take up arms and avenge this act of violence against King and his family, King calmly raised his hands and said, We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Only a few months before this bombing, the civil rights movement had gained momentum after the brutal killing of the 14-year-old boy Emmett Lewis Till. Till was abducted after walking into a local grocery store and touching a white woman who owned the store. A few days later, Till's mangled body was recovered from the Tallahatchie River. King called this crime one of the most brutal and inhuman crimes of the 20th century, and it made its way into his sermons on multiple occasions. King and other African Americans have looked to the cross of Christ as God's faithful answer to centuries of abuse of African Americans suffered at the hands of white people in the United States. Here's how theologian James Cone describes the Christ in the altarpiece of African American experience in his must-read book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Theologically speaking, Jesus was the first lynchee who foreshadowed all the lynched black bodies on American soil. He was crucified by the same principalities and powers that lynched black people in America because God was present with Jesus on the cross and thereby refused to let Satan and death have the last word about his meaning. God was also present at every lynching in the United States. God saw what whites did to innocent and helpless blacks and claimed their suffering as God's own. God transformed lynched black bodies into the re-crucified body of Christ. Every time a white mob lynched a black person, they lynched Jesus. The lynching tree is the cross in America. When American Christians realize that they can meet Jesus only in the crucified bodies in our midst, they will encounter the real scandal of the cross. So writes Dr. Cohn. We all know well the fate of John the Baptist, beheaded on a king's whim. The fate of the Reverend Dr. King was similar, shot and killed by James Earl Ray at a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968, after decades of faithful witness and work for justice. His work was not in vain, but his work is not over, and it is our evangelical task faithfully to carry it on in our society today. The famous German theologian Karl Barth did his most significant writing in the shadow of the Eisenheim altarpiece, both literally and metaphorically. He sat at his desk under a reproduction of the piece, and he wrote a number of extended reflections on the unnaturally long and mesmerizingly shaped finger of John the Baptist depicted in the piece. The entire task of theology, the entire task of being Christian, Bart thought, was to point to the crucified Christ like the Baptist finger, this is the way, in fact, that the church believes in and recognizes God in Christ, Bart wrote. Faithfulness for humans looks just like John's pointed finger, bearing witness to God in Christ, and it looks like Martin Luther King Jr.'s unwavering faith in God's commitment to bring about justice in this world. It's undoubtedly a difficult task, and its end is death. But so be it, and let it be so. Amen.